Peace and blessings. This is Muslims for Peace podcast. You have tuned into Muslims for Peace podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. So I, um, assalamu alaikum. Uh, today I get to do two things that I very rarely do. The first is speak at a podium because everybody can always tell that I'm 5'2", um, which is something I try to hide. And the second is to speak to a predominantly Muslim audience. Um, I very rarely get to do this, so it's ex both exciting and refreshing. Um, first, I'm incredibly honored to be here, particularly among a, a panel of incredibly qualified, esteemed, excellent um, colleagues in this space. Second, I'm honored to be here because I've actually never really been in Jersey for longer than like an hour. So this is setting a record for me. It's a shame, I know. I hear the food here is really good. Um, and the people. I mean, but you always put food first. That's how I travel. You know, If the food's good, I'll go, then I'll meet the people. It's, it's a system. It's a system. So um, I was born and raised actually in Canada. I have the honor of being a Canadian. Yes, yep, it truly is. And um, Canadian-Libyan. And my parents moved from Libya in the late 1970s. Um, and I was born in the late 1980s. And uh, I, how many people here are either immigrants or the children of immigrants? Hands up. Okay, so like everybody in the room. Good job. Um, but I don't know if, if, if your family was similar to mine. I'm going to assume it was, where the only thing that really mattered to your parents was A, how you treated people, and B, how well you did in school. So in my family, it was genuinely how well you did in school. My dad was completely, I have 10 brothers and sisters. Mashallah, right? Think about my mom right now, mashallah. I have 10 brothers and sisters, five brothers, five sisters, so we win on that one. Congratulations to us. Yep, it was very important growing up. When you talk about alliance building, it always helps when your alliance is automatically bigger. Um, when you talk about negotiation, it always helps when you have more people to negotiate with. And growing up, my dad in particular uh, was hyper-focused on his daughter's getting an education. Not just any education. My sister ended up being the first woman to graduate from medicine from a Libyan background in Canada. She then went into the most competitive field in Canada, plastic surgery. Um, and to this day holds the record for the highest mark on the boards for plastic surgery. Yeah. She did this by the time she was 26. So I had huge shoes to fill, which I didn't mind because I'm also incredibly competitive. That's another side effect of having 11 kids. And when I grew up, we would go to the mosque occasionally, but to be quite frank, not very often. It's quite difficult to be able to organize for one mom, while my dad was always at work, to organize taking you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 kids to the mosque. So most, the bulk, or the entirety really, of the religion I learned was what was taught to me by my parents. And I learned very young that Islam was merciful. That is what my mom always taught me, across the board. Literally anything I did, Islam was merciful. It was almost the exact opposite of what I learned when I went to the mosque. Because when I went to the mosque, I really liked Backstreet Boys when I was younger, and the Spice Girls, I still do. And when I went to the mosque, I was told I was going to hellfire for really liking both of those. And I was like nine years old. 
So when you tell me I'm going to hell fire for the Spice Girls, I'm like, it's a long ways away. I'll listen now and I'll deal with that later. But to me, religion, the way it was taught to me at an institution, was exceptionally stringent. It was strict. It was not forgiving. It wasn't enlightening. It wasn't, I, everything I was told about was how angry God was and, and how angry God would be with me all the time. And how no, like, it felt like you couldn't win. It truly did. And my mom would give me this alternative universe where she'd be like, no, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is merciful and his mercy is greater than his wrath and he's the most forgiving. And, you know, imagine how much I forgive you. My mom forgives me so much. Allah She is the most amazing. She has patience, like dripping. Her blood is not blood. It is patience, I swear. It is in her veins. And she says, imagine how much I forgive you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves you a hundred times more and he forgives you a hundred times more. So here I was between the institutional faith, which told me that that was not the way it was. And as I got older, I learned that institutionally, the person my parents had raised me to be, as outspoken, as eager, as ambitious, was not what my mosque thought young women should be. Uh, between my parents, who had raised me to literally, like if I had told my mom I wanted to go to the moon, my mom would pack my lunch. She would. She'd be like, Allah, let's go. Like, what are you still doing over here? So between the person my parents raised me to be, and then as I got older also, what society told me I was. So either I was exceptionally oppressed one day, I was too vocal and ambitious the next. And my parents, at some point when I was a teenager, started getting very confused. Like, why are you having so much trouble with identity? And it's because every single person was telling us we were supposed to be something else. And I am going to pick a little bit on the mosques now. I will. And that's because our mosques don't do the same thing to the young men. No. The brothers can go party on Friday night. They don't even need to just listen to Spice Girls. They can like go the whole 10 yards, and then they can show up and say they've repented, and everybody is forgiving. Nobody asks them where their religion is. Nobody asks them about their piety. Nobody challenges them. I know this from firsthand experience. If my brothers were to go out on the weekend, they could come to the mosque and everybody be like, Mashallah, he came to the mosque. Mashallah, future generation is strong. And the young women would be like literally doing halaqas Friday night. And they'd be like, Astaghfirullah, sister, why are you not wearing a skirt? Like, I'm sorry, but the way women dress is not the sixth pillar of Islam, not last I checked. It truly isn't. So as excited as I am that we talk often in Islam about the history and the roots of Islam, which I think is important because I think, uh, unfortunately, the way we teach it institutionally is very negative. I genuinely believe that. There is not a lot of love in the way we teach our faith. There's a lot of compulsion, and that's the exact opposite of what it should be. But while that's important, I mean, as children of immigrants, I'm sure you recognize, I once got about 86 on an exam. 86. Now, for background, for context, I graduated from high school when I was 15. So in 86, was very abnormal. The only class I almost failed was art. And I was so proud of it. I still am. I'm like, I was an awesome student. So I came home with this 86. And there was this one girl in class. We all know the one person in class that you compete with. Everybody has one. It's, you think it's a secret. It's not. The other person knows you're competing with them. Like, I had one girl, and she was, mashallah, so smart. Her name was Alicia. 
And I honestly credit her for, for where I am today because she made me competitive and she made me work harder, but she had gotten an 83. So I went home so proud of my 86. And I was like, Baba, look, I got an 86. Most of the class got 60s. Alicia got an 83. And my dad was like, well, did anybody get above 86? Because if I had gotten the highest mark, I would brag about that too. So my dad knew that I hadn't. And I said, well, there was this one girl. But she's not, she doesn't usually compete with me on marks. And my dad looks at me and he says, when did I raise you to compare yourself to the average or the less than? I raised you to compare yourself to the best and to your best and to be better than it. And the reason I bring this up is because our community is so good at comparing ourselves to a thousand years ago and we're so bad at asking ourselves where we are today. We're not good at it. We don't do it. We just don't do it. And I love that we can sit here and talk about how we need women on boards and mosques and how we need women to be spiritual leaders and how we need them to be recognized in the community. That is all true. We do. But it's not, about, it's not about us opening the door for women. I feel like we're a bit confused there. It's genuinely not. It's about the fact that either we're going to open that space or they're going to create their own. I'm sorry, but as it stands right now, Muslim women are more educated than their male counterparts. We economically are more powerful and will continue to be more powerful. These are the empirical realities. I told you guys I like numbers, I like studying. The empirical realities is we will economically reinvest 90% into our communities. On average, men reinvest 30%. Where is that 90% going to go? If I have been told my whole life, from when I was a child going to the mosque with my mother that I was too noisy, that it was not my place, from when I was a teenager going to, to the mosque without my hair covered, that it was not my place unless I covered my hair, to when I was an adult going to the mosque and people told me I had too many opinions, where, why would I go back and reinvest my time and energy and resources into a space that has told me since day one I do not belong? That has not been built in my likeness. That I have not had any role in shaping. And why would I want that, inshallah, the day I have kids, for my children? I still remember men coming, sending young boys to the women's section, which by the way was the size of a shoebox to ask the women why the kids were noisy, as though the kids were not the men's as well. I'm sorry, but last I checked, that wasn't the religion we were taught. And we're all very good at talking about the Prophet and We're all so good at talking about him and saying we're going to be like the Prophet, and then we don't actually do it. I mean, the one thing my dad taught me that I, that I hold on to a lot as I get older is in Islam, you are only held responsible for what you know. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not ask you on the day of judgment why you did things if you did not know they were wrong. You are held responsible for what you know. You're supposed to seek to learn. But if for whatever reason you didn't know, you lived in the one corner of the world that didn't have internet, that had nothing, you are not held responsible for that. The reality is we all do know. We've had these conversations multiple times. We have. We have absolutely no excuse to keep having these conversations, to have one day a year where we glorify women, where we talk finally once a year about domestic violence as though it's this abnormality when the vast majority of our mosques have significantly higher rates than the average American communities. I mean, I remember once having a conversation with a friend of mine, a girl I went to high school with, and she said something along the lines of, yeah, but Muslim men are violent. 
they don't really like hearing from women. And I was like, wait a second, where did you get that? This girl knows my family, she knows my brother, she knows my dad. She's, I don't mean your family, but I know that because you tell me. And I was like, I've never said that. And she said, oh yeah, but you tell me you don't like going to the mosque. And, and you tell me that when women in the mosque talk about domestic violence, they're told to be quiet. And you tell me that, and I have sisters who don't wear the scarf. And she said, you tell me on, uh, when you go to Friday khutbah and they talk about the veil or they talk about how you can hit your wife with miswak as long as it doesn't show. She said, you're the one who tells me all of that. And it was a wake-up call for me because if we want the world to stop thinking that Muslim men are not listening to women and that they are not violent or at least they're not complicit in one another's violence, then guess what? We have to start actually doing it. We have to start actually listening to women. And we have to build institutions which act in service of our communities. Now there's two things I'm going to wrap up on. And the first one I think is actually the most important. If we are going to talk about women in Islam and women in, Muslim women in our communities, we also have to talk about men. If we're going to talk about challenging those gender roles for women, we have to talk about them for men as well. And I'm not saying we center men in this conversation or we... we for, for, to detract from women, I'm actually saying that that's a necessary part. We cannot have legitimate conversations about women's roles in our communities if we're not doing the same for men. We cannot talk about femininity if we're not asking ourselves, how do we teach young boys what it means to be a man? What do we teach them about leadership and courage and respect and control and power? What do we teach them? Because I mean, last I checked, young boys don't grow up just thinking that they can hit women unless they're taught. Which means we're falling short, not just for our young girls, but for our young boys as well. And it's not realistic to say that we're going to create and exist in separate spaces or separate rooms or separate institutions in the long term. At the end of the day, if this community is going to move forward, it's going to have to move forward somehow together. And I don't want for my brothers, because I genuinely think limiting the roles and the influence and the leadership of women is actually as detrimental to young boys as it is to girls. I don't want my brothers growing up in a world where they somehow think that power or, or, or leadership or means control. I don't want them to think that. I don't want for them to feel like it's an excuse that somehow being a man, I mean, when, when Me Too was, was an active conversation, some people said, well, boys will be boys. What do you mean boys will be boys? Last I checked, they're not animals. This is not, the fact that we're even saying that is, is disrespectful even to the men in our community. We should expect better of the men in our community. That's what we should expect. It shouldn't be boys will be boys. We should start holding one another accountable. And that means teaching our sons better, teaching our daughters that they have rights and they deserve them. And teaching our sons that, yeah, when their wife comes home, if she wants to quit working, guess what? You're not assisting with the housework. It's your house, too. It's your responsibility, too. That is part of your job. The last thing I'm going to touch base on is um, I don't normally work with Muslim communities. I work globally. And alhamdulillah, that means that every single person in this room has been impacted in one way or another by the work we've done. And that's something called the Sustainable Development Goals. And 
I've been asked by Muslim communities why I did not focus specifically on working with the Muslim community, etc. And that's because, I mean, growing up, our Muslim community in Saskatoon when I was younger was just never that big. Um, when I was 15, I moved to Libya, and I never saw the Muslim community as having different issues or challenges than everybody else. And what I mean by that is in the Sustainable Development Goals, we're talking about ending poverty or education, we're talking about quality health care, we're talking about innovation, we're talking about gender equality and reducing inequalities and sustainable cities and climate action. And last I checked, those impact Muslims as much as they impact everybody else. And as much as I cheer for Muslim communities when they want to talk about Islamophobia or when they want to talk about peace building locally, as much as I cheer for that, I think at some point as a community, we have to start talking about our responsibility to other communities. We have to. We call on people when we are feeling threatened or when we are feeling uh, you know, violated. We call on people and ask where are our allies. We always do that. We say nobody stands up for our community. When was the last time our community stood up for somebody else? When was the last time our community went and supported Black Lives Matter? Or when was the last time our community in Canada, for example, supported the First Nations community? When was the last time our community said, you know, we're not going to talk about Islamophobia today. We're just going to talk about ending poverty in our neighborhood or feeding the homeless. Because if the number one cause for Islamophobia is people not knowing Muslims, then the number one solution is to get out there and let people know who you are through your actions. When I was younger, my dad taught me that ibadah, like work is ibadah. Work is, is the best form of worship. It is the best form. And he told me this story that I'm going to share with you guys, and it's going to be very wrong because it's ad-libbed, and my dad tells it in very poetic Arabi. I'm going to tell it in some choppy Canadian English. But we're all going to pretend it sounds as wonderful. But he told me a story of a man who would pray every day. He'd make dua, he'd read Quran from morning till night. He'd pray every day. And he would ask in his dua, am I not the most holy? Am I not the best believer here? And one day he had a dream where he was told in his dream, you're not. You're not the best believer. Go to this store. Some people are smiling, so I think they know this. Okay, good. So they can correct me if I'm wrong. Go to this store, and there is a man there, and he is the best believer in the community. And so he goes to this store, the shop, and he sees a man helping customers. And he stands and he watches him. And he doesn't see him praying. He doesn't see him making dua. He doesn't see him do anything. So he, he asks himself, how is he a better believer than me? Right? Like he's sitting there. He's in shock. It's like, I pray every day, all day. That's all I do. So he goes up to the shopkeeper. He's so curious. And he says, how are, how are you a better believer than me? And the shopkeeper gives him a spoon with an egg on it and says, I want you to cross that very busy street. Keep the, keep the egg on the spoon. Don't let it fall. So the man takes his spoon with the egg on it to cross the street. And there's cars, and I'm sure it wasn't cars, horses and buggies. And, and he crosses the street, and he doesn't crack the egg, and he comes back overjoyed to the shopkeeper. And he says, look, I didn't crack the egg. And the shopkeeper says, how many times did you remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And he's like, well... I was focused on keeping the egg on the spoon. The shopkeeper says, as I do my work every day, I do my work in, in the thinking of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is how I do my work. 
Anna And that was a story my dad told me when I was very young about what it means to be a worshiper. So the reason I think it stayed in my mind beyond even the lyrics to all the Spice Girls songs is because there is a significant responsibility that you have in, we have in our communities, we have to our families, and we have to one another. And that is that if you are going to be in a position where you have any type of influence or authority or voice, then you have to lend that to other people. You have to open up that space. And you have to leverage whatever your work is to be able to give back. And for me, that community is not just Muslims. It's the 8 billion people living on this planet. It's the reason I dedicated myself to the global goals. It's the reason I negotiated them and passed them and advocate for them. Because my vision in 2030 is that every single child has the right to an education. And in those every single child, there will be Muslims. And in those that aren't Muslims, they'll know that Muslim women fought for those goals for them. And my, my one call to action, I think, to everybody here is think of the position you're in. I mean, when, you know, when we all talk about our role models when we're young, a lot of us, when I was young, I always used to be like, oh, Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, Oprah, right? Those were your role models, the people who were far away, who you couldn't see, who looked extra big when you saw them on screen. And as I've gotten older, my role models have changed drastically. It's my mom. My mom is the first leader I ever met. She There are some moms in the audience. But truly, she raised 11 kids. She was the minister of education, of transportation, of, of, of literally everything. I can't remember a single thing I grew up wanting. Not once. And my dad was at work the vast majority of the time. He did what he felt was his job. But my mom did everything. And she probably taught me more than anybody else what leadership means. That it is in its essence the ability to sacrifice and to cultivate other leaders. That she can raise a daughter who chooses to be a stay-at-home mom and she can raise a daughter that chooses to be a plastic surgeon and she can say, I did my job. I gave them the skills and the tools and they chose for themselves. That is the best form of leadership. And if we have that in our communities, it's then our responsibility to elevate that. I mean, I don't know how many of you have tried to separate 11 kids when they're arguing, but on God's green earth, I will never try. It's not a skill set I even want. I have two nephews and a niece, and when they start crying, I leave the room. I have no, it's just not in my, my space. But imagine if those were the women that were leading our communities. Just imagine that. I have a young niece named Sophia. She got a Spider-Man costume for Halloween last year. My sister is married to a nice Canadian boy, so they take Halloween very seriously. And this was, you know, first shocking for my parents, and then Sophia didn't take off her Spider-Man costume for three months. Literally, she would take it off to change into her Spider-Man pajamas, and when it ripped, she would get her grandmother to sew it for her. And Sophia is the only girl 
She's the only daughter, granddaughter, so of course she's spoiled and I completely support that and am complicit in it. But it was interesting to hear the comments from parents and children alike. Parents would say to Sophia, it's not Halloween anymore, you don't need to play dress up. And boys, young boys and girls, even girls would come up to Sophia and say, you should give your Spider-Man costume to your brother, you're a girl. Superheroes are boys, Spider-Man's a boy. And Sophia, bless her, has not been um, taught by society yet that she isn't a superhero. So she would debate them. She'd be like, no, it's not Spider-Man, it's Spider-Girl. And I'm Spider-Girl, and my aunt told me, and my mom told me, which, by the way, is, is law to her. And she would take people on, and she would have, she's three, she'd use her limited vocabulary to have active debates. And what was the most interesting part about it was the number one person to tell her she was Spider-Girl was her older brother, Amir. The number one person. In any room, if somebody spoke to her, but no, my sister's Spider-Girl. He was Han Solo, so you know, everybody had their role. But the reason I mention it is because what our communities are is a reflection of what our homes are. And if in your home, the boys are telling the girls who and what they are and who and what they can be, and they are told that they can raise their voice or raise their hand, then that is what the community will look like. And if in your home your boys are told that they can cry instead of hit, and that they can be vulnerable and they can be partners, and sometimes, most times, if my family's in any, any, any indication, the girls will teach them too, then that is what our communities will look like. So before or while we're trying to change the bricks and mortars in our mosques and the way our institutions are built and set up, we should also do that in our homes. 90% of abuse is with it from somebody you know. 90%. 90%. If there is something that you want to change, then we can all start in our place of work, in our place of home, changing it there first. And from there, you will be surprised how quickly systems change when everybody that exists within them is changing the way they operate and the way they work and the way they worship. Thank you.